0: You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood, told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel.
1: Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. Now, before we get to today's guest, who, by the way, has a really unique journey and some very funny stories, I want to talk for a second about something I said at the beginning of last week's show. I briefly mentioned how I had always seen successful men as having been successful their entire lives, guys who are millionaires, top athletes. That somehow they just excelled at everything, always experienced the outcome they wanted, that they never failed, never took a wrong turn, never hit up against any challenges, which of course is bullshit. Everyone experiences failure. And looking back, I think that was just a defense mechanism I was using, something I could use as an excuse, something to blame for the fact that I had failed in my life. So that must be the reason I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. So with each failure, I began to believe less and less that I could succeed. But the more I actually sat down with highly successful men, men who are the, the king archetypes I interview here on the show, the more I realized, well, yeah, not only did they have failures, but the failures they had were actually part of the reason they were successful. Now, of course, a lot of other things go into success, your drive, determination, courage, passion, purpose. But it was the lessons they learned from making mistakes, in some cases, huge mistakes, ones that would have crushed other men. Those lessons they learned are what allowed them to ultimately succeed. So unlike me, they saw failure, along with facing challenges and obstacles, as something to be embraced, something to be proud of. They looked at it as another blow of the hammer used to forge them into steel. And someone said to me, and I I believe it was uh, one of my mentors, RJ, he called it the crooked path of life or life's crooked path. And when he said it, it made sense to me. I mean, look at nature. Nothing in nature is a straight path. Tree branches, rivers, the veins in our bodies, they're all important paths and they're all crooked paths. So it's the same with the path of our lives. No path in life is a straight line. There are always going to be twists and turns. There's going to be challenges and obstacles we go over and around. It's like that one step back for every two steps forward. They're all crooked lines on our journey that ultimately lead us to our destination, to our goals. It is also the crooked paths that teach us the most, deliver the best lessons. They make reaching the top all the more satisfying because of what we overcame along the way. So for me, the more I not only embrace my failure and appreciate the challenges that I hit, I actually stop fearing them, I stop resisting them, and I start looking for the messages and lessons that I can take away as I continue on my path. And that feels more natural, right? I mean, it just fits, because as men, we're explorers, we're adventurers, pioneers. If we're not jumping into the unknown and pushing the envelope, we're stagnating and falling backwards. So each new challenge brings us new opportunities for growth, for wealth, for passion, for success. And that brings me to today's guest. His name is Mark Stern and he's a really interesting guy. And like I said at the beginning, he's had a unique journey and a lot of great stories. In fact, we talked for over two and a half hours when we met, so I selected a few of the best stories and I'll introduce them to you as they come. But what struck me as I went back through our interview was his crooked road to success, how his journey was anything but a straight line. And even though he was passionate about one thing in his life, which was music, and all he dreamed of was to make that his career, he was also open to taking advantage of other opportunities, looking for new and different things, and as he says, throwing a lot of shit against the wall, knowing they may not all work, but taking the chances anyway. Over the course of his life, Mark talked his way into a singing group at age 12, owned his own record company while still in his teens, then made a fortune in the newspaper business. He emceed one of the most unique pageants I've ever heard of, which led him to host a late night talk show on television for years where he interviewed legendary celebrities of the time. And now, even in his early 70s, Mark owns a talent agency and still performs himself on stage regularly. As you'll hear, Mark always had exceptional drive and was pretty fearless even at a young age. As I mentioned, he always wanted to be in the music business, so when he decided at age 15 or 16 that he wanted to open his own record company, he knew he needed a mentor to teach him the business. Growing up and living in Detroit, Mark decides to go for the best mentor he can find. He wanted Barry Gordy to be his mentor, and he told me how he talked his way into Motown Records.
0: I really wanted to open my own record company. That was the big thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, I got to find somebody to teach me the business. I mean, I could sing. I could I could sign with somebody, but I wanted my own label.
1: So you had a real passion for music. Even for I music do. Music. I really do. Is that and really the only thing that you were really passionate about back then? I mean, was that your, your main focus? I, you at, I didn't care
0: about school. I just wanted to, to get out and and go and do my thing. And that's what wound up happening when I – decided I am, there was a new label called Motown. Mm. And uh, Barry Gordy, uh, was, it was a startup. He'd only been in it for a while, but he had some, some named people who I thought were going to become big names. So I started going down there after school every day, driving down there in my 57 Chevy, would, would go in the, in the front door, and, and there was a woman sitting at the desk who uh, actually was Thelma Gordy. It was, it was Barry's wife. And I told her why I was there. I want to learn the business. And she said, well, you know, he's, he's pretty busy right now. And I just kept going day after day after day until one day she said, all right, look, I'm going to get you in. And she walked me down the hall. And I remember Motown Studio. It was Hitsville, USA on, on Grand Boulevard. There, there was a glass partition on the right side that you could see the rehearsal room. And uh, Marvin Gaye, now remember, these people, nobody knew who they were yet. Marvin Gaye, Mary Wells, the Supremes, the Shirelles, uh, all of them were there because it was a, a daily rehearsal studio.
1: And Do so uh, you know who they were at the time when no, you were walking down the hall? You just no saw idea. people in a thing. You had no idea they were going to become legendary.
0: I had no idea. They were just entertainers trying to make a record and make a name for themselves. After probably my 10th or 11th time going in there, Thelma Gordy said to me, okay, I'll take you down the hall. I'll introduce you to, to Barry. And, and she did. She took me down the hall, introduced me to Barry. And I uh, remember, I'm the only white guy in the place. So they're looking at me like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, I, was, I think I was 15 or 16 years old. And uh, she introduced me to Barry, and I went into his office, and I'm very nervous. And even on the way there in my car, I got pulled over by the police. You know, that neighborhood wasn't the safest neighborhood to be in. And the cop pulled me over and he said, what are you doing down here? And I told him, I'm on my way down to meet Barry Gordy. Yeah. And he gave me an escort. Oh, no kidding. Gave me an escort. He said, say hello to him for me. And he gave me his badge number. I guess everybody knows him. So yeah. anyway, I told him why I was there. I want to learn the business. And he, sa- and he said, well, you know, why should I teach you the business? I said, well, first of all, I promise I won't bring any black artists in, only white, and you don't have any white artists. And he laughed at me. I mean. He was, I don't know if he took me seriously or not. He said, let's see how good you are. He says, I got a stack of, of, uh, of acetates here. They're demo records. Let's listen to them together, and let's see if, if we both agree on what's good and what's not good. And he played about seven or eight of them, and we either did a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And we matched on every one of them. Wow. He said, you know music. Let me introduce you to everybody. And he took me in the rehearsal and I got to meet everybody. And everybody, they could not have been nicer to me. He,
1: he became a mentor to you at that time, right?
0: He did. He taught me the business.
1: How long uh, were you there with him for?
0: Um, I went back there every day uh, after school, probably for a couple months. And I got f- even friendlier with everybody to the point that I would actually be in the studio while they're recording. I actually sang background on a couple of things. I just, I loved it. I was in heaven doing this stuff. Um, and I just knew that it, everything that he was working on was going to be a hit. And uh, most of them were. Uh, the groups became so famous. There was one incident I remember being in the studio standing next to little Stevie Wonder at that time. Wow. And he was doing a recording. And, and uh, in the control room, they kept saying, Stevie, I'm hearing a noise. I don't know what that noise is, but it's having an effect on our, on our finished product. So uh, he played it back, and I heard in the background, tick, 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 tick. I go, Stevie, you have a watch on it? He had a Braille watch on, uh-huh. and it ticked. I said, give me the watch, and I stuck it in my pocket, and he finished recording that day. Everything was great. I went home then, and I forgot to give him his watch back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I panicked. I panicked. I didn't want him to think I stole his watch from him. But <laughs> so the next morning, I, I didn't go to school. I, I cut school. I went down to the studio. And I, said, and I looked at him and I said, I'm so sorry, Stevie. I did not want you think I stole. And he said, you're not going to steal from me. Everybody was just delightful. They were so nice.
1: And now Barry himself, I mean, here's a guy who's starting probably, you know, the legendary recording studio and label of all time. And he's got this high school kid who comes in. And just based on you and he liking the same music, he then is going to teach you how to run a business like this.
0: Well, that's... That's kind of a case of giving back. And and um,
1: I believe in that, and I had hoped that he did, and he did. There are a couple of things here that really hit home for me in this story. First is Mark's determination, how he went back day after day, because he knew this is what he wanted to do, and this was the man who could help him. And what blows me away is that he did this in his early teens. You know, I know when I was a teenager, I didn't have the courage or the will to walk into the office of a man like Barry Gordy, let alone going back after being told no over and over. So Mark's courage here is inspiring. But the thing that really hits home for me is Barry Gordy. Here is a man who is building and running the most influential recording company of the time with some of the biggest stars of the time. Obviously, a man in demand with little free time for himself. And he offered his time and expertise to help a young man for no other reason than to help to mentor someone who is as passionate about music as he was. Keep in mind, this was in the early 60s when segregation was in full effect and racial tensions were high. And with all of that going on, here is a successful black man mentoring a young white teen. It's absolutely inspiring and shows the power of men stepping up to mentor and guide other men. After Mark spent several months learning the business at Motown, he left to start his own record company. He found a partner with money who loved the music business as much as he did.
0: I found a guy by the name of Barry Kay, whose father was like the vice president of Standard Oil or something. He had money to burn and he loved the music business. He wanted to be in it and he needed somebody to direct him. So he and I became partners and we opened up a company called Keiko Records, K-A-Y-K-O. And we started looking for talent. We found a lot of talent right in our own high school, uh, and I found a group called the Darlings, we named them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was uh, Judy Cutler, Marianne August, and Donna King, uh, and we recorded a couple of records with them that were moderate hits right off the bat. I'm very proud of those, because uh, my name was on the label for the first time. <laughs> How old were you at this time? I was 15 or, I think I was turned 16.
1: So you were 16 years old and you started your own record label. Oh, yeah. Tell me me what that was about. Was there any fear involved in doing this or were you just driven and determined to get this thing open? I didn't have any
0: fear at all. I I knew I had learned from Barry what to look out for. As long as I had the money backing me and and paying for the sessions, I could look for talent. The Darlings were great. We put out a record called Big Wheel. And uh, it was, as I said, a moderate hit. We backed it up with another one called Two Time Loser. And uh, the writer for uh, these records was Marty Coleman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we found a guy by the name of Rick Drapkin, who's, who used the name Ricky Martell. That was not a hit. Uh, it was good, but it wasn't a hit. And I went out looking for more talent and went to some of the high schools for their shows and found a group called The Reflections. And The Reflections uh, were a uh, a four-man group who, I loved their sound. I thought we could really do something, and they had some music that they had already written. Uh, So I went and I I found a a space above my father's drugstore in Detroit in the inner city and rented an apartment to use as offices and put a piano up there Mm. so we could do rehearsals. And I had the group standing around the piano, and I was just playing chords and thought of – chord progression, and started singing. And I said, you know, that's pretty catchy. And I over and over, I did it. And the group is standing there, and they're doing the harmony to it. And uh, I wrote, at that time, the song was called Just Like Romeo and Juliet. It turned out that we had it down perfect, and we were going to record it. But we had other records, a song called Helpless. We recorded that first. Mm-hmm. and um, I went up to, uh, to pick up the Darlings up in Eastern Michigan University, and on my way up there, I had a bad traffic accident. I uh, actually went through a guardrail, went out my back window, um, and notified the Darlings that I couldn't get them, uh, and I had to get a new car because that car was totaled. So I went to Barry Kay, and I said, Barry, uh, you know, I don't have the money to buy a car. I need to borrow the money. And he said, "Um, I got a deal for you. How about if I give you $2,500 and a new Chevy, 62 Chevy Supersport convertible? (laughs) And I said, done. But I had to give him all of my songs. I had to give him all of my interest. And I sold out of the company.
1: So Mark sells out of the company and gives up his rights to the songs he wrote, including Just Like Romeo and Juliet, which became a hit all for $2,500 and a car. But there's a power in not being attached, not holding on to something, and being open to something better. Because as it turns out, shortly after he sold the music company, another opportunity came up and it turned out to be big.
0: Oddly enough, the following month, we hear on the news that the Detroit News and Free Press are going out on strike. And my brother called me up from Wayne State University and he said, listen, there's a couple of guys and my, myself who are talking about putting out maybe a double-sided sheet with news on it that we can hand out at the factories at General Motors and Ford. And, and maybe, uh, I said, maybe we can sell some advertising on it and make money on it. And I said, so why are you calling me as if I didn't know? He says, well, we need money to print it. We need $175. <laughs> I said, okay, count me in, because
1: I had just gotten to $2,500. Well, I want to get to the 2500 real quick because we kind of like flew over that. But music's your passion. This is what you want to do. You build this company. How old are you now when, when you sell out of it? 17. 17 18. when I sold
0: out. And I think I had just turned 18 when the newspaper strike hit. All right. So, it was 1964.
1: Okay. So you had K Keiko for about a year.
0: About, yeah, about a year, a little over a year. I think. So why sell out of it? Well, what, I didn't have a choice. I, I mean, I had to have a car. You know, I wasn't making money, but I loved what I was doing, and I figured, okay, you know, I didn't have a non-compete clause, so I figured I'll get into it. My brother and I decided we're going to open up a company called Melody House, and
1: and we did. Got it. And, okay, so it wasn't like you decided to get out of the music. No, thing. no, I
0: wasn't out of the business. I we yeah. were still working on it. My brother and I were working on it together. He was always a great partner, and uh, we opened Melody House, and I broke I broke the rules. I hired two black artists. Um, and we recorded them, and it was really good. We were getting ready to put it out when the newspaper strike hit. Now, I don't know. I've never been in a newspaper before in my life. At Wayne State University, they had a daily paper called The Collegiate, Mm -hmm. and my brother was the advertising manager there. So he talked to the editor there, who was a guy by the name of Frank Gill, and Frank Gill was the uh, editor of the Detroit Times going way back, and he knew everybody. Mm -hmm. So he called everybody in, and I have a philosophy about business, and this is the reason why. You're only as good as the people you put around you. Frank Gill had all big professionals who were well-known. He brought all of these people in. I got on every TV station and every radio station and announced that the Detroit Daily Press was going to be out on Monday of next week. That was really balls. Yeah. We, we had editorial. We didn't have distribution yet. We didn't have the advertising department yet, but we knew that we could do it within a week, and we did. Wow. We came out on, uh, on July twenty second, 1964, and uh, we put 100,000 papers on the street. We sold out. The paper got as big as a 64-page with color comics and a TV section selling 400,000 papers a day. Wow, for
1: 122
0: days the strike lasted.
1: So you got this thing ramped up and running and running. Ah, four days very fast.
0: We can we could put out a paper in any city in four days, wow. and uh, and we did. We did several other cities after that. But I became a millionaire at age 18 because of this paper. I was very proud of it. Sure. And uh, several years later, there was, uh, three years later, there was another strike in Detroit. We put out the Detroit Daily Press again, and the Teamsters struck us. Mm. So we went to a councilman by the name of Tony Wearsbicki, who was publishing the Detroit, the Polish Daily News. He had contracts with all of the Teamsters and with all the other unions. So we put together the Detroit American. And published for almost six months, and made more money on that paper than we did on the 64 paper. We we circumvented the union, stopping us from putting it up. We were we became known instead of being the Stern Brothers, we became known as the Zigzag Brothers because they zigged, we zagged. <laughs> I loved it. I loved the excitement. It was all great. Did you, know, you ever have any blowback
1: on this from going against the you know the striking? Uh... No, as a matter of fact,
0: uh, in in seventy eight. Uh, we put out the New York Daily Press, became the second largest daily newspaper in the country, uh, putting out more than a half a million papers a day. We also, after that one, put out the Minneapolis Daily Press and the St. Louis Daily Press. Wherever there was a strike, the Stern brothers were there the first day and have, would have a paper on the street in four days because wow. we had a formula. Gary knew what his job was. I knew what my job was, and we did it.
1: I asked Mark if he always looked for
0: new opportunities. I look for opportunity always. And it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time. And you can't be in the right place at the right time if you're sitting home waiting for somebody to knock on your door. And that's my philosophy, the right place at the right time. And quite frankly, if you don't throw enough shit against the wall, you're never going to make it. You've got to get out there and, and throw as much against the wall and hope that something sticks. And, and that's the reason why I have been as successful as I am.
1: Always looking for opportunity and not just sticking to one thing, being too rigid in his thinking, that's what has led to Mark's success. Of course, that along with his will and determination. Mark and his brother Gary began investing in other companies. They needed something to do with all the money they were making, so they had people coming to them with ideas. Think of it as their own early version of Shark Tank. And while they were mostly successful, not all their decisions were winners.
0: I took my wife on a cruise and My brother, Gary, was in the office alone, and he's a lot easier, or was, I have to say, a lot easier than me. He could be sold easily. I'm tough. And this girl came in, and she must have been good-looking because he never would have given her all this attention. And she said, my boyfriend is is an artist, and we need seed money. We need office space and phones, and we're willing to give up 50% of the company. Because we can't go any further on, on our own, and he said, "Well, my brother's on vacation right now. He'll be back uh, n- uh, at the end of the week. When he comes back, you know, leave a few pieces of the art, and I'll have him look at it, and we'll talk about it. And If it's for us, I'll call you back and tell you." I came back in, and I looked at it, and I looked at my brother, and I said, "This girl was really good looking, wasn't she?" <laughs> 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 I said, because, quite frankly, I think the art is pure shit. Yeah, you know, and he says. Well, if you feel that way about it, I'll call her up and tell her to come in and pick it up. So he calls her up and she comes in the office and she says, Are you guys sure? I said, oh, I'm sure. Believe me, this is, this is not anything I want to put my money into. So she gets on the phone and she calls her boyfriend to come and bring the van so that they can get the art out of the office. And she says, Peter, get over here and pick up this stuff. They really want it out of there. His name was Peter Max.
1: Now, if you're not familiar with the artist Peter Max, his psychedelic art defined the 1960s and the counterculture movement. Sales of his posters and merchandise were in the tens of millions of dollars. So I wanted to know if Mark regretted his decision.
0: You don't always make the right decision, but you got to make decisions. And if you're only right once out of 10 times, and it's a big enough decision, you're going to make a fortune. And that's that's what happened with me. The newspapers are where I made my money. The entertainment business was okay. And I loved my, that was my first love. And I made money in it. But the, but the newspaper business was, was where
1: it was at for me. I loved his answer. He doesn't dwell on the mistakes, doesn't whine about what could have been. He's happy with the money he's made, happy with the good decisions he's made, and he keeps moving forward. This next story is one of my favorites, Mark tells me. Mark left Detroit in 1974 and moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida with a girlfriend. After living there a few months, Opportunity literally knocked on his door. Naked Opportunity.
0: We're in this apartment and there's a knock on our door after three or four months being there. And Eric, I swear to you, this was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. I opened the door and there's a couple standing there totally naked. (laughs) (laughs) and live in the complex she was a a dark an Indian girl and he was a gray, young looking but had gray curly hair and he said we're going down to the pool right now we thought maybe you and your girlfriend would like to join us I said well let me ask her so she comes over to the door and she goes well hello there (laughs) and her reaction was like she was stunned she said they want to know if we want to go to the pool and she says yeah as long as we keep our suits on And we went down to the pool and took about five minutes before we were without suits. Wow. They weren't swingers. They weren't trying to start anything. They were just nudists. And they said, would you like to come out to the nudist camp with us tomorrow? And we said, yeah, sure. It's out in Davie, Florida, about 30 minutes away. So we went out there and um, took us about... Three minutes there before we, be, we were just like everybody else. Nobody had clothes on. Wow. And I went and I, you have to pay $10 grounds fees. And I went and I paid the grounds fees and turned around and walked away. And the guy who took us out there, the guy with the gray hair said, looked at me and he said, okay, I got a question for you. I said, what? The woman who took your, your money, was she dressed or not dressed? And I couldn't remember. Wow. He said, that's the whole point. It doesn't matter. Okay. So, we enjoyed the day. I started going out there every weekend with my girlfriend yeah. and got friendly with the owner of the club. And he said to me, listen, I know that you've been in show business. Would you be willing to MC the Miss Nude Florida pageant? We hold it here once a year. I said, yeah, that sounds like it'd be fun. So I did. I MC the Miss Nude Florida pageant. And after the pageant, everybody takes off their clothes and jumps in the pool. Nobody, it doesn't matter. Two guys in the pool approach me. One of them says, I'm a television producer. I was wondering if you'd be interested in hosting a talk show. Another guy comes up to me and he says, I own the Miss Nude World pageant, and I'd like to have you emcee it. It's up in Canada.
1: So just by taking off your clothes, what you're saying is you got incredible opportunities by being nude.
0: No, it was not because I was nude. Because if it was because I was nude, I wouldn't have had any offers. The offer was because I did a good job of emceeing the pageant. You know, I sang a couple of numbers. You know, and uh, and I, I'm good on stage.
1: So, from agreeing to go to the pool with naked people at his door, Mark ends up with his own TV show. It's amazing what can happen when you are willing and open to anything, to all possibilities. Here, Mark talks about the celebrities he's met and how they were in real life compared to who you saw on TV. It's a great lesson in how to treat people, no matter who they are.
0: I cut a deal with the television producer to host a talk show called, and we couldn't figure out what name to use. We didn't want to use Mark Stern. So we're standing in the pool and and we're throwing names at each other. And we start at the beginning and we get to Alan. We're in the A's. I said, how about Mark Allen? He goes, that's good. I said, okay, I became Mark Allen. Hmm. Now Everything I do in the entertainment business is Mark Allen. Everything I do in the newspaper business is Mark Stern. So I know right away if, when they ask for me, I know what they're calling about. Sure. Uh, the show went on the air. I did a celebrity talk show for, oh, gosh, probably six years or so. I had Johnny Carson on my show. I had anybody who was performing down here yeah. had to be on my show because there was nothing on TV other than me after Tom Snyder went off the air. He was the last one. Right. And then my show would come on.
1: So and, what were these people like? I mean, you know, Johnny
0: Carson With would? Most of them were just great. They're, they're people. People are people. It doesn't matter what they do for a living. That was their choice to do. There were a few exceptions. Muhammad Ali was just the nicest guy uh, probably ever. Charo uh, is a brilliant girl who I dated for a little while after <laughs> having really. her on the show. yeah. I mean, all of them. Uh, Mike Douglas was one of the nicest people ever. Tony Bennett would call me whenever he came into town. We'd have lunch. It was just a wonderful experience.
1: If I had anything to do over again today, it would be that. What did you take away from that? What did you learn from being on that, meeting these people who are you know, household names and celebrities who just were regular people.
0: What I learned is that it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You got to be nice to people. And and if you're nice to people, they'll be nice to you. It, you know the old expression, you put your pants on one leg at a time? Well, that's how I treated everybody. I was not, aw- I wasn't awestruck uh, meeting and interviewing anybody. I talked to them, and that's why they liked me so much, because I didn't, Kiss their ass.
1: I asked Mark if any of these men, these well-known legendary celebrities, had a lasting impact on him.
0: Johnny Carson did. He was, he was a sweetheart. Mike Douglas handed me a picture of himself signed saying, Mark, there's plenty of room at the top. I love that. I, have, I keep that. I've looked at it a million times.
1: So that's a guy who wasn't threatened by anybody who just felt like, you know, hey, we can all be successful. Exactly. Uh, I love that about
0: him. He's really, uh, really a nice guy. Phil Donahue, also very giving, nice man. But Tony Bennett probably was head and shoulders uh, over uh, most of them, over all of them, I should say. Because after our interview uh, at the Dova, and it's so funny when he came in to, the, uh, to meet me at, for lunch, uh, he walks up to me and very quietly says, uh, "Hi, I'm I'm Tony Bennett." Like nobody knows, <laughs> and everybody in the place laughed. And he sat down, and I did kind of a little mini interview with him. And before we uh, started doing the uh, videotaping for the for the on air interview, uh, and he he said we we talked about his art, and he took me up to his suite, and his artwork was magnificent. The man is such a talent. Wow! Really? Yeah. I, there, were, there were a lot of them that uh, I got to know um, on a personal basis, and I, I enjoyed that. I get along great with show people. I always have.
1: Treating people, even legendary famous people, with respect is important, and it served Mark well in his life and career. There were a lot of people in Mark's life, especially early on, men like Barry Gordy, who did a lot to help him when he needed it. I asked Mark about doing for others, and he told me that for him, it was never about making money, but about working with others and helping them succeed. He told me a quick story about a credit counseling business he opened with a close friend, the first business he opened in Florida, right before the TV show opportunity came, and how it changed his friend's life.
0: It was helping people get out of debt, and we were a free service. We got our contributions from the the creditors to help keep us afloat. And we helped thousands of people get out of trouble. And they were, they were very thankful for that. It was during that company's operation that I met that television producer. And when, when uh, I was sure that I was going to do the show, I went to my partner and I handed him the keys to the office because I didn't want anything for it. We, we built it together. And I handed him the keys and I said, it's all yours, 100%. I don't want anything from you. And he brought his son in and they became a multi-million dollar company.
1: And they're still running it today? He retired. He's ninety-three years old.
0: He's still, he's still with us. And his son moved back to Detroit. Uh, and he is an author of a half a dozen books. Uh a very talented guy.
1: There's a powerful message there, one I know I needed to hear. Because if I'm being 100% honest with myself, I'm not sure if I could start a business, invest time and money, then hand it to someone else and watch them turn it into a multi-million dollar business and take nothing from it and then be genuinely thrilled for their success. Yet Mark does that and is proud of what they built the business into and in his part in making that happen for them. I'm imagining what the world would look like if more of us did that, if more of us supported each other in that way. One of the other businesses Mark runs now is a talent agency. He books gigs for more than 400 entertainers in South Florida. I asked him how his agency got started, and it turns out it started because Mark's own agent wasn't acting in integrity. So he stepped in. We were doing about
0: 200 shows a year. The agent comes to me and he says, listen, sweetheart, you know, a typical agent. And he says, I got, a, I got a gig for coming up on this date, but I can't pay you what we normally do. Would you be willing to take it for half the price? I said, yeah, his name was Jerry. I won't say the rest of it. I said, you know, Jerry, you gave us 100 of our shows last year. I'll do one for half. Not a problem. So we go and we do the show. And at the end of the show, the woman walks up to me and says, honey, here, take the check and give it to your agent. Save me a stamp. I said, okay, I look at the check. It's like five times what we're getting. And I, I said, okay. I, uh, the next morning, I go to Jerry's office, and I go, Jerry, I, I need you to explain this. And I put the check on his desk. And he looks at me, and he says, sorry, i got to say it again because I'm quoting him. Get the fuck out of my office. I said, are you kidding? With all the shows we do for you, you've got 25 shows on the book still. I said, cancel my shows. I'm not going to work for you anymore. Yeah. He said, really? What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to become an agent, but a, but a fair one. So I registered Florida Talent and became the entertainer's agent because I know what it's like to be on this side. Sure. I worked on, worked on a very small percentage.
1: So you are operating now out of honesty, out of integrity, out of you know, uh, duty to the people that you're actually working for. It's the only way I will ever work.
0: Ever. At the end of the newspaper in Detroit, we had a surplus of money. We gave $300,000 in bonuses to our employees because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have made our millions. Right. So we felt obligated to take care of them. And we've done that on every newspaper we ever published. We always set aside bonuses and they were shocked. But you know what? It comes back to you in spades because when the next strike happened, we were the first place they came. Right. Okay, Okay. because they knew that we dealt with them with integrity.
1: So it was a long term, right? You when you operate in business, you're operating out of the long term.
0: Absolutely. Even if it's a strike, then you don't know if you're going to ever come back to that city. It doesn't matter. I'm not doing it for getting something back as a reward. I'm doing it because I want them to appreciate that we are appreciating them. We, We want them to know it. And in every case, that's exactly what we did. And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. It wasn't my idea. Okay. It was my, my brother's idea mostly because he, he was a lot nicer and easier than me. But I became much more like him as time went on. He was almost four years older than me. Because money wasn't the priority. Money isn't the priority in life. If I know a lot of very wealthy people who have no friends because they don't treat people right. And, and the key
1: is to treating people right, and they will treat you right also. His brother, Gary, was a huge influence on Mark, teaching him about appreciating people and your duty to the people who work for you and buy your products, about being honest in business and operating in integrity. Those values are a big part of our sacred seven core values here on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. And I had given Mark a copy of those seven and asked him which hit him the most.
0: Courage, I absolutely have unparalleled courage. I'm not afraid to do anything because if you don't do it, you don't know whether you would have, you know, so many people back away because they're afraid of rejection, okay? You can't be afraid of rejection. You've got to do what you've got to do, and, and you're not going to find out if it's a winner unless you take a shot at it. So courage is extremely important. Honesty, forget it. If you're not honest, you don't need to be in business because somebody's if you're dealing with honest people and you are honest yourself, then you've got a relationship. There's no relationship if either one of you is dishonest.
1: Right, and it won't last long. That's the whole thing. You know, you might get away with it once or twice, but at the end of the day, who's doing business with you down the road? That's right.
0: That's right. Now, I run into dishonest people all the time in other now I'm, I'm in a lot of other businesses because I, I throw enough shit against the wall. I'm in a lot of other business. I just, bought a, I just bought a salon, a beauty salon, right across the street from here because my significant other has been working there for 19 years and the owner of the place kind of flipped out and they were gonna close. And I wouldn't let it close. Everybody was gonna be out of work. They're crying, where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? I went to the landlord and I signed a 10-year contract and I bought the place everybody's making more money than they ever made. I'm not, but I don't care. It's not always about money. It's about honesty, integrity, and what can you do for somebody else if you've got enough, especially. But even if you don't, I promise you, if you treat people right, you will, no matter what business you go into.
1: It sounds like what you just did, too, and, I, and that's beautiful that you did that. But it sounds like there was a sense of duty there also.
0: Um, I couldn't let it close, but then everybody, including my significant other, she had retired. She was retired for two weeks when this happened, you know, and she really didn't want to work. You know, she's 74 years old and she doesn't need to. I mean, we're very comfortable, but it's her social life and and all her friends and she's got her regular customers and she didn't want to really stop, but it was getting to be too much for her. But now, that I bought it, she went right back, and, and she and my manager run the place. I don't even go there. But I do the books. That's about it. And as far as commitment is concerned, well, there is an example. I made a commitment. I made a 10-year commitment when I purchased it. I made a commitment uh, uh, to her. We're together for 34 years now. We never got married, but she's more protected than she would be if she were my wife because I made sure that that's how it, how it is.
1: Mark always wants to make sure she's protected, now and after he is gone. This goes back to his sense of duty to others. I asked how they met, and he told me they were neighbors and their kids were friends. She was going through a rough time, so of course he helped her. And by doing that, he found not only a partner, but even more opportunity to give back.
0: One day she called me up and she said, I've developed breast cancer. And uh, I was horrified because we were friendly. And she said, and I can't sit here all day doing nothing. I have no hair, but I, I bought a wig. And when you go into work in the morning, please take me with you because my husband can't handle this. So I took her with me. And she, goes, she said, I'll just answer phones and, and file and, and uh, I, you'll, you'll be happy that I'm there. I said, okay, fine. So she did that for a couple of weeks. And after a couple of weeks, she said to me, "You know, you do all the paste up. We didn't have computers to work with at that time. I'll, I see your guys in back are doing paste up. Can I learn how to do paste up on, on on the newspaper?" I said, "Sure. You want to come back at night? Come on back." I didn't come back. I was I was home. I mean, I'm married. My my wife did not like the the music business. She had, she did not want me performing, but she loved the newspaper business. So I was I didn't want to make waves. So. She came back and she learned how to do paste up. After a couple of weeks of that, she said, you go out and sell advertising all day, don't you? I said, yes. She said, can I go with you one day? I said, yeah, if you want to. So she came with me and listened to my sales pitch. And the last appointment of the day, she said, please let me try this. I said, okay. It was,
1: all by herself. You know, she wanted to go well, in a lot.
0: Well, I walked in with her because Mark Allen had to be there. It, it, it's odd how people are because my name's on the masthead. They want Mark Allen. Okay, because they want me to do stories about them and so on. So we walked in there together. I watched her sell the guy a $100,000 contract. And I said, from now on, you're going to be selling, okay? I don't <laughs> want you. <anything laughs> Wait hang on a minute.
1: A $100,000 contract? Yeah. And what year is this? Uh, this was in 1985. Yeah, so that, that is a huge contract. Oh, yeah. Well, it was the
0: biggest nightclub in town. And uh, so I put her on the road. Uh, one account in particular I sent her to called The Cheetah. And, and she,
1: <laughs> she didn't know.
0: And she walked All in the door.
1: I live down here and I know what The Cheetah is.
0: She walks in the door and she gets on the phone with me and she says, you son of a bitch. I go, what? She says, the only thing this girl had on was an ankle bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she was a great salesperson. And I, I, I really couldn't afford to pay her the commissions. I, so I made her a partner. And she was thrilled. Her husband wasn't. And she became very self-sufficient, didn't need him anymore, divorced him. Mm. We found her in an apartment. She developed breast cancer a second time. And she developed breast cancer a third time. Mm. And we were going to all of the breast cancer functions, fundraisers. We were doing everything. And I said to her, Listen, I have an idea. She said, What? I said, Let's open a foundation and raise money because we met so many women who couldn't afford to pay for the surgery or the psychoanalysis in a lot of cases. Right. After the surgery. Let's raise money for them and, and get a doctor's panel who are all involved in breast cancer. And we opened the Pink Ribbon Foundation. And the Pink Ribbon Foundation raises money. I do concerts, I bring in because I have a line to all the entertainers as my Florida Talent Corp. I bring in my best entertainers, and we do, we do fundraisers at the hospitals. They charge us nothing. The entertainers charge us nothing. Wow. Whatever we raise goes to the women who need the money, and we make sure that they need the money before we release it to them. Right. We pay the doctors directly. We don't give it to them. And we also sponsor their recovery group meetings. Uh, here in South Florida, every every week, so we're doing a lot on that front, and very proud of of what we're doing. and And we raise money. A lot of it comes from the uh, Harry Mangurian Foundation, uh, who is a a, a very philanthropic who was a very philanthropic man, and who was wonderful to people also. And his his organization donates a lot of money to our
1: group. I asked Mark about his duty to give back. And we got into a discussion of honor, of being fair in business and making sure everyone benefits from the deal and the impact that can have.
0: Your last item on here, because commitment, duty, and honor Mm -hmm. go without saying, that that is so important to me, especially the honor. I learned that from my brother. Tell me. Well, he was, as I said, he was uh, a a much easier going... uh, He would... If we were in negotiations uh, for something, he would give away the farm every time. He would mm-hmm. give away the farm. He didn't really look at what we were left with. Even if, even if in, we had an opportunity to make a lot more money, he didn't even go for that. He, he went for what he was comfortable with and to make sure that they're making money in this contract or they're not going to stay with it. And he, he taught me. He really did. And, and for me to say it in these words now is probably the first time I've ever said it out loud. Uh, unfortunately, he died last year, mm, sorry. Uh, and uh, it was a terrible loss for me. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, he was he was the maker of the rule. Throw enough shit against the wall, because he found the deals, and I negotiated the deals, and it worked like a charm. I mean, we made so much money together, and. Uh, And we made so many friends doing it. At his funeral, uh, it was just packed with people that we had grown to love and who loved us. And very important to me.
1: And I would think that in business, I mean, the way he did business, like you said, with honor and making sure everyone was happy. I mean, that proves that lasting legacy of his, right? Yeah, it does. It does for me. Mark then told me a quick story about working with the Jerry Lewis Telethon. It was about giving the kids something to do, a sense of self-worth and accomplishment, more than just being the recipients of donations. So I came up with this idea because I had co-hosted the
0: Jerry Lewis Telethon one year to get in touch with Jerry Lewis and see if we can get Jerry's kids to sell our newspapers on the corners. The kids that were able to, on the corner, to sell the papers, and usually with their parents, it gave them a sense of belonging, it gave them a sense of accomplishment, and it gave them an opportunity to make some money. And we paid them double. We didn't care whether we made money or not. They were thrilled. They were all thrilled. That's an example of of giving back again. Through my life, all of it has been in everything that I've done, there is an example of giving back. Because if you don't give back, you don't deserve what you got. You know, when you start out, you need the money. That's all you're thinking about is making the money. Uh, and then when you get to a point that you've made the money, some people get worse. Some people have to make, have to make, have to make more money. And some people say, I have enough to be comfortable. I don't have to kill somebody to, to, make money anymore. And that's where I'm at. And I have been just so lucky that uh, I'm thankful. And how do you pay back your thankfulness? By doing something for someone else.
1: With all of Mark's success and his drive and commitment to give back, I asked him about any challenges he faced in his life. And I was surprised at his answer.
0: I had parents who were not favorable of my doing what I was doing, trying to open newspapers and record companies and uh, all the other things that I've done. Uh, Their philosophy was old school. Just go out and get a damn job. I had a problem because my mother was an alcoholic and my father owned a drugstore. So he would help himself whenever he wanted anything. So living in that environment uh, was a very difficult thing to be able to be creative in. And um, the first thing I did when I made my first money was I bought Sam's Drugs chain in in the Detroit area. And I made my father my partner because he had just gone bankrupt in the inner city of Detroit. So I bought him a chain of drugstores and supported him instead of him supporting me. He took care of me the first 19 years. From that point on, I took care of them. And uh, growing up in a World War III atmosphere every night and getting through it and then still keeping your, train of, your, your thoughts and your business, uh, and, and they were a great example of how not to be. Not so much my father, because he was a very quiet, hardworking guy. My mother was impossible. She was... Uh, she was so difficult, and, uh, and yet uh, I was able to get through it because uh, I, had to, I had to do more than my father did. He was, he was the reason I pushed myself more. He owned a little drugstore in Detroit. He had an opportunity to own the Tony Corporation, the hair, the hair stuff. Oh, Tony. I remember those. He had an opportunity to, to own that company and didn't have the guts. And every year he would say, I'm going to sell this place, you know, I'm going to sell it. And, and the inner city got worse and worse and worse until he couldn't even, he just couldn't do it. He had to file bankruptcy. When I bought Sam's drugs, I bought the chain. I watched him change completely. I watched him go from depression every day to being proud. And the day I closed on the deal, he looked at me in tears. He looked at me in, with his eyes and said, this is the best day of my life. Mm. So I I got such, I remember it like it was yesterday. I got such a thrill from hearing that come from my father.
1: He was a good guy. Seeing his father as a good guy, even though he had issues, seeing the value of him being an example, even if it was an example of what not to do, appreciating the lessons his father gave him, Mark sees the value all of this brought him. After spending over an hour telling stories, Mark told me how he hadn't thought about the impact he had on others or the impact they had on him until he started telling me the story of his journey. Until
0: talking about it with you and, and, and going over these things, because you don't go over all these things uh, on your own. You, you know, it's a new day and you do what you do. But in, in looking at my past and talking to you about my past, I never really realized how it has, that has been the consistency of my life has been giving back.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> and, and really feeling that it's coming from love. Like it's really coming from the heart. You're not, you're not giving back to get more. It truly is just a giving back. That's all it is. Yeah. I, and, I have, and,
0: and you know what? And, and my significant other will tell you this too. I spend
1: my life and I spend my time helping people. Whatever their problem is, I'm the fixer. And Mark never saw a need to fix himself, never saw himself as a victim, even with the family life he had when he was young, even with the few failures he experienced in business. All of that actually drove him harder and made him look for the beauty in life.
0: My parents said, or any of the people around me on a daily basis said, you can't do it. You're never going to make it in this. The harder I fought to say, you guys are wrong and I'm going to show you. I have a friend who developed uh, cancer, pancreatic cancer, Mm -hmm. age four. And he looked at me and he said, they have this new treatment uh, out in Utah. I'm going to go out there and try it. And he and, and his girlfriend, who worked in the beauty salon, she wanted to marry him before he died. So I made arrangements to have clergy come into the hospital and marry them before he went because he was in and out of of, of oxygen and uh, couldn't breathe on his own. So I had one of my very close friends go there and marry them, and they went off to Utah on this treatment. And I encouraged him every step of the way, do what you have to do. I got a Facebook post from him last night and his wife now, saying that they just did all the tests and he is 90 plus percent free of cancer
1: whoa from pancreatic stage four pancreatic stage four, which is typically a death sentence
0: he knows it but he wouldn't let it beat him he said i'm going to beat this thing uh they they went on facebook as uh go team craig craig is his name 231 people joined it and and i'm so proud of them I, i mean go there and to do this treatment and stay positive. They went whitewater rafting yesterday. Wow. This is a guy who was on a ventilator who was like this close to dying. And, and they went out whitewater rafting. And, and I'm so thrilled for them. And I encouraged them as much as I could. And I, I just, I can't tell you how, how happy. My heart was smiling when I heard this news last night.
1: That's all. Oh, absolutely. That's beautiful. I mean, you can't, there's nothing else in life you can experience like that. After hearing that, I asked Mark about his favorite life lessons. My life lesson is that if you are the type
0: of person that's going to sit home every day and watch television or wait for deals to come to you, you're not going to ever be successful in business. The only way to be successful in business is to get out there, like I said before, throwing enough shit against the wall, be in the right place at the right time. And you can't do that if you're not any place. That's my life lesson is, is get out there. Now at this point in my life, it's a little different because I'm not really out there looking for deals at 73. And I, quite frankly, I don't need them. I'm comfortable for the rest of my life, no matter what I do. But for the young guys that are watching this thing, don't sit on your ass. Get out there. Even if you think it's nonproductive, something happens. Some deal will come along. Hey, when I went to a nudist camp and the guy asked me after seeing me emcee a, a pageant, asked me if I would do a talk show out of nowhere. I wind up being a very successful talk show host. And That couldn't have happened if I was sitting home watching TV.
1: With taking advantage of the opportunities and and all of his success and then helping others with success, Mark and I got into a conversation about his son. Now, Mark loves his son and he even backs him in a business that he started. And he wants to see him succeed. But he is reminded that while they are related, they are very different people.
0: He's not a businessman. He's a creative guy. And I'm just hoping that before I go, I'd like to see him really make it in in what
1: he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you will. He will. I mean, he'll have to, you know, do it his own way. He's on his own path.
0: I I, I get that. You know, and and Beverly keeps telling me, don't push him so hard, you know, let him do it on his own. And I know it's just, and she reminds me all the time, he's not you. That's hard for me. He's not you. He's not. Yeah. Why is that so hard for you? Because, I know that I know what I would do in his, in that situation. I I'm, I'm I have a tendency to to push him to do what I would have done, and and you have to remember that everybody has limits, and he has limits. He's I couldn't sit down and write commercials all day long, and he can. That's his area of expertise, but he can't he can't go out and put out a newspaper. And, you know, and, and mentor other people the way I do. So I have to remember, he's not me. And I, I can't push him the way I've had a tendency of pushing him. He's 53 years old. I mean, don't forget, when, by the time I was 21, I was married and had two kids and a house. Kids are smarter today. They don't do that. He kind of had a love-hate relationship for me anyway because I left when he was six. And his, his mother wouldn't let me have any contact with him until he was in his mid-teens. So my daughter never got over it. So she and I don't have a relationship, but he and I do. But I have, I do, I have to stop pushing him so much. I know. I, 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 you know, it's one thing to mentor someone, but it's another thing to push them beyond their limits. And, and I have a tendency to do that. I need to stop it.
1: Well, I don't know that you need to stop. I'm going to disagree with you there. And and I'm not saying in the case of your son, you know him better than I do. But I think some of the things and some of the things that have made you successful, some of the things that have made me successful are going outside of my comfort zone, right? Being pushed a little bit, not hammered into the ground, but pushed beyond that comfort just a little bit to get you to kind of grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. grow. So to me, I see a benefit in that. So there, there is a way of pushing. I'm sure you had people in your life that pushed you out of comfort zone as well.
0: My brother, Gary, pushed the hell out of me all the time. I mean, I had never done any of these things. I didn't know anything about newspapers or, or to get on TV. And I was, I was risking my reputation going on TV and saying, we're going to have a newspaper on the street in four days, you know, and we're going to have home delivery and we're going to have this and this and this. I, I was bullshitting. I mean, I didn't know what we were going to have, but I had to ask myself, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if we don't?
1: I was wrong. Sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> we didn't have it on the street in four days. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's it. Oh, and that's what I learned. That's what I really learned from him.
1: Yeah. You have to go outside comfort every once in a while. It's the only way you're going to grow. Otherwise, you're either stagnant or sliding back, and that you don't want to have happening. You have
0: to remember one thing when you're throwing all this shit against the wall. You have to remember one thing. All you need is one winner. Out of those 10 deals, if you get one big one, the other nine didn't count. Don't look back. And that's why I look back at Peter Max and I laugh. Oh, okay, I messed, messed up. I missed that one. Yeah. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Go out there and try your best. You'll make it. You'll find it. Sure. But you can't do that unless you're out there trying your best. The key is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to not make it in something. You'll make it in something else. But you've, if you don't try, you have no chance. And that's my philosophy. I tried, especially when I was younger, I tried everything. Believe me, that, there were plenty of losers. But I don't even remember them because they're
1: unimportant now. I love what Mark says here, and it's something many of my guests have talked about, about not being afraid to fail, not having fear of trying something new and it not working out, because the failures themselves aren't really failure. They're incredibly valuable for learning, so they don't dwell on them. After Mark and I had finished with the interview, he started to reflect on his experiences over the last couple of hours. Remember, Mark is 73. He's had a long life, a lot of experience and success but he hadn't reflected on much of it for years. Mark got quiet for a second. Then he told me being on the show opened his eyes a lot. There were things in his life he hadn't thought about until we talked, and he had some new insight on events and people in his life. I asked him about those insights.
0: Well, I think the benefit of being a guest on your show is that you do some soul searching. You look back at everything that you've done, which isn't a normal thing for a guy to do at this point. Uh, I don't think anybody goes back. To, I, I went back to age 12 with you and talked about everything along the way, good and bad. I would never have thought of these things if I wasn't talking to you about them. And, and uh, they opened my eyes to a lot. I under, I'm, I'm understanding my reaction uh, uh, to a lot of things, um, I- including where my parents played a role, especially where my brother Gary played a role where my ex-wives played a role, all of these things, and, and, and the entertainers along the way. And it made me open my eyes to the most important thing of all, how much I've helped people through the years. I never thought of it before. And thank you for – it makes me feel good. It gives me a warmth knowing that I'm a good guy. Yeah. Okay? You don't think of yourself that way because, you know, it's a day-to-day thing. But when you look at everything along the way and all the people you've helped along the way, uh, past, present, and I know I hope future, uh, it makes you feel good that you've been there for them.
1: Yeah, and I know it feels good to them, too. If you're thinking all you're feeling is their warmth and their reaction to what you've given.
0: Well, thanks for for making me think of it and, and bringing it to light. It makes me feel a lot better about my life. But well, you know, what's funny is that I thought I'm coming on this show to help men. Mm-hmm. It helped me. Mm. Beautiful. Because I see myself as, as being there for other people. And I hadn't realized how much. But, but going over all of the people that we talked about that I had been there for, it's very rewarding. There's Absolutely. A,
1: so thank you for that. And thank you, Mark, for sharing your stories with us. And what I thought was so powerful about what Mark told me after we were done is the importance of sharing our stories with each other, not only for the sake of helping others, but for ourselves to reflect on the life we've led, the impact we've had. Because that's important fuel to keep us motivated and driven when our lives start to take one of those crooked jags on our journey. It's during those jags when we tend to forget the good shit we've done. So after my interview with Mark, I got the men of the round table together to get their takeaways from what he said, to get their insights into his life and their own. So joining me are Mark, Frank, Barry, Doug, Tom, and John. And Tom leads us off talking about taking chances. He talked about the beginning of the interview with, you know, putting the shit up the wall, up against the wall, see what sticks. And and I think that is so indicative of obviously his entire life of taking that attitude of, you know, if you don't get up to the plate, if you don't swing at the pitch, you know, you're not going to hit the ball. And and I think again, so many
2: times people, I think we've talked about this in the past that people kind of wait for things to happen to them and okay, how come, you know, I'm not getting this break. And it just kind of comes back to you. Just have the attitude, have to have the attitude that you get up there
1: and, you know, you either go down swinging or, you know, you hit the long ball. But either way, you got to take that cut. You got to take that try. You got to
2: take some chances if you're really going to make something of your life, whether it be your career, or your life in
1: general. Mark and I talked about trusting intuition and stepping into the unknown.
2: When I trust my intuition and I go do the things that I enjoy and I get to the right places, there's always opportunities right there waiting for. it.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's stepping into that unknown, right? Like boldly stepping into the unknown and just having the courage to go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this, but also having the self-honesty to go, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm going to learn as I go. And I'm just going to make sure that I'm really, really good at it. So, I mean, it's something that I really had to look at, you know, for me and myself was where has that, Lack of self-belief, lack of courage, lack of willingness to kind of do something I don't know kind of held me back from, like you said, Mark, like an adventure. Here's Doug on having interest in everything you do. He
2: seemed to have a high level of interest in everything he looked at. He was interested in the drugs business for his father. He was interested in the music business. He's interested in the actors and actresses. He's interested in the new pageants. He's, I mean, he is, he just seems to be looking at everything's with, with while it was with wonder, it was also with a high level of, of interest of, I'd like to know more about that. Let me ask the questions. Let me find out about it. And I, you know, to me, it's, it's like, I know he called it courage, but I call it more of a, um, he was so interested in it, it, his interest overcame any fear issues anytime he may have
1: had fear issues. Doug, I'm going to say like, what about the word fascinated by interest too? Like it fascinated him that maybe he could go host this nude pageant. It fascinated him that his brother was like, Hey, we can get into the newspaper business quickly. Yes. You know, like that wonder, that fascination, that sense of, you know, being an explorer and kind of pushing that boundary a little bit. Frank talked about making your own luck. He just embodies the phrase, make your own luck.
2: Is, is the k- big thing that kept coming back for me of, of listening to what he did, of just, he made his own luck. Um, and it also kind of brought up a quote. It's from Richard, Richard Branson of like, you know if someone offers you an opportunity and you're not sure you know how to do it, 100% of the time, say yes. Like you'll figure it out. Don't say no. If it sounds like a, you know, a, a fascinating opportunity, say yes.
1: Here's Barry and I on having an impact. I thought it was huge. It was so... Uh, heartwarming, I guess, um, at the end, you know, everything that
2: he's done, everything he's contributed being in this interview, he said, was the thing that made him realize after 73 years, what an impact he really had on people's lives.
1: And that, that, I think that is so, so huge. That's part of why we tell the stories, right? Because it's, you know, we don't, there's this, this thing in society about being humble and not, you know, talking about yourself, but in some points, it is taking ownership and appreciation of your own wins of the stuff that you do do. And I think in telling these stories, not only do we impart that, that wisdom, that experience, that knowledge onto others, but we also reinforce it in ourselves. Hey, this is what I'm doing with my life. I'm living a good life. I'm being a good man. I'm doing the things that I need to do. And it's that reinforcement for yourself. That's so important too. John jumped in with the importance, or I should say lack of importance, of taking the traditional path. There's
2: a theme that keeps coming up with these interviews and it keeps getting stronger is where these successful men have not gone through the traditional path of let me get good grades, do well in school, uh, go on to my job and do this. They've all kind of just done their own thing, been sovereign about it uh, from young ages or they've gone through some difficult times and they're not focused on that traditional path that everybody feel that feels they have to follow and they go out and they do their own thing and they succeed. And it's interview after interview, it keeps coming up. And it's just one thing that I'm aware of as I listen to these things and kind of that, that off the, off the regular path that these guys take. And, and even as a young kid at 12 years old, I mean, trying to think of myself at 12 years old, trying to do something that bold and going into this place and just basically demanding that I, that I get a chance. It's, just, it's amazing. The, uh, I guess the word for it is like that, that childish, uh, innocence that you can do anything and we lose it as we go through life a lot of times. And he kept it the whole way through and kept his life as a journey, as everybody said before.
1: I want to thank the men of the round table for their insights. I think the theme for us without question is to always be open to opportunities and to go into them with a willingness and a courage and to embrace the result, whether it's what you expected or not. There's always something you can take out of even what you think are your failures. Now, I want to know what you got out of Mark's story. Does it make you more open opportunities or does it make you want to host a Miss Nude Universe pageant? Let me know. You can find me on social media. The links are on the website. That's WLKHpodcast.com. Just click on those social media links, leave us a comment or start a conversation. And also remember to rate us and leave a review and comment. Most importantly, make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it because that's what we're here for, to help and support each other. So please pass it on. I want to thank Mark Stern for joining us today, for being real and honest and telling us the story of his journey to modern manhood. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel talks with warriors, lovers, kings and heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you to be your brother on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week.